Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagné. How are you feeling, Mark? I feel like uh, pe- uh, Marshmallow Peep in the microwave. How are you feeling? Whoa, you're freaking melting. I feel like a privileged slug. <laughs> a privileged slug is what I feel privileged. like. Yes, I, I for, you know, I'm at my grandpa's house. As we know, my mic is sounding a little bit different these past two weeks. Hopefully it sounds better right now. But I'm, you know, I've lived in like all these different cities. And then I come back to where I'm from. And like, I'm at my grandpa's house. And I'm like, it's really nice around here. Like, it's super nice. But I'm also feeling kind of lazy. So. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So uh, this is though. this is episode 32 for new or uh remaining listeners every week me and mark each bring a book to the table i don't know what book he's going to talk about this week he doesn't know what book i'm going to talk about this week but a lot of the times we play games before we do our shitty book reports and mark has invented a new one which the only thing i know about i understand is it has the potential to either be a masterpiece or go terribly awkwardly is that is that correct yeah yeah it definitely has potential either side okay Uh, so yeah First off, I'll start. Um, so let me ask, what are your favorite games that they played on the show? Whose line is it anyway? I was always really into like, what's that game where like everyone's really psyched when the show ends with them? Like they have to sing a song, right? They have to continue the hoedown. The hoedown. Yes, that like hoedown was really exciting for whose line is it anyway? I liked pretty much anything that had to do with like wayne brady coming in in the clutch because he just always like saves the day <laughs> with like crazy yeah. Wait, stuff singing singing He's really good yeah at the songs yeah the songs like co- coming in and the clutch the songs i also like um wasn't there ones where it was like they like i don't know stuff like where they were inventing like fictional movies and stuff like that i really like like lines from films and everything and obviously, anytime that they made fun of Colin for being bald. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's always good. I liked uh, they had the scenes from a hat. That was good because that was more free form, like right. audience suggestions. And they would just, you know, everyone would, would take their turn. They'd, then they'd, you know, try to one up each other, or make fun of each other and stuff. Mm-hmm. There was the uh, the green screen news reporter one. Where they always put something right. like disgusting. Yeah, yeah right, right. And then, they, yeah, that's that was really good. Yeah, the Irish drinking song, which is pretty much the same as the hoedown. Same uh, as the hoedown. But yeah. is it, I, I always was, felt like when a, when an episode closed without a hoedown, I was always like a little bit let down. Yeah, when they would just be like, you're going to read the audience, or no, read the credits or something. That, yeah, that yeah. That was always a thing they had to, yeah. yeah. There was like an um, alternative like thing where it was like not the hoedown, you're like, damn it <laughs> yeah <laughs> well the winner wasn't it the, the the winner the like the the fake winner of the show got to not do the hoedown yes yes i think that was the thing because ryan ryan hated it ryan doesn't like the like songs and stuff um, <laughs> uh so there was also you know there was really good ones when they had like audience members participate like they would do the like the either the sound effects one oh yeah sound effects that sound one, effects is so good, good. Or the uh, living scenery one where the people had to be like props. Right. Well, we should also mention, I think the games are pretty consistent, but we should also mention that Mark and I grew up on the American Whose Line Is It Anyway, hosted by Drew Drew Carey. Carey. And uh, I think the, the actual show existed in a form in 
like in London, in England before it did before it came over here. So some of our international listeners might be not be familiar with the celebrities that were our whose line is it anyway, but it's all it's all the same. Nah, I think <laughs> yeah, I think there I think people know, but um yeah, it's been it had a long life. And now it's in like a third iteration now. Um but anyways, yeah, there's a lot of good games on that show, but there was anyway, there's one they played this one game called uh three headed Broadway star. Mm-hmm. Where you'd have like a three-person combo, you know, Ryan Stiles, Wayne Brady, Drew Carey. Uh, they'd stand next to each other and they'd have to like sing a song one word at a time. So they, you know, one person, one person at a time, one word at a time, mm-hmm. trading off, and like they would base it on a premise from the audience. So let me just play a really quick example. Pay attention in the whole room. Okay, here's the big hit love song. You've got soul from the Broadway musical. Uh, something about a shoe. <laughs> you are my soul mate. I can't hardly believe. You're only supposed to say one word at a time, and Drew Drew fucked up right there. Drew broke um, it. Yeah. So I thought, you know, let's try to recreate this uh, with two people, I guess, and make it about books. Okay. Uh, so you know, I've got I got some topics or books here, and let's let's try this. You know, see if we can either describe it, describe the plot, or really say make a statement about it that makes sense while following this formula. For okay. So the off. so you're gonna throw out a book title that we generally should know something about, and then we yeah. and then we have to go one word. You go one word, I go one word. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this this could be very difficult. Okay, let's um, do it. All right, first one. Uh, the Metamorphosis by Ka- Kafka. I guess my uh, another question is who goes first? Uh, you you go first on this one. Okay. So the, meta- the Metamorphosis, you know, okay. like read in school or whatever. Of course. Okay, so man. Wakes up in his house and he turns into a <laughs> thing <laughs> that where when is the conclusion <laughs> when is the conclusion? that's the one thing cuz we got to we got to be able to put, uh, you know, a bow on it. I think that that makes sense. Man yeah, wakes up works. in his house Man. and he turns into a thing. <laughs> That's the metamorphosis. Go, <laughs> yeah, Gregor Samsa. All right, Does, next one. In the metamorphosis, is he turning into a beetle? Yeah, what it's like a turning? bug. Yeah, I, like I, bug. I wanted to say bug, but I was, tr- I was, I was trying to make it, make the sentence longer. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it going. Yeah, I guess you could just say and, and a bunch of times. Uh, and <laughs> all right next one uh the 
the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Okay, so the whole series. You, you start. Okay. Actually, I, uh, yeah. You start. I'll, I'll start. This book is really long and <laughs> contains a large amount of epic characters hey there you go <laughs> this book is long <laughs> this book is long and contains a large amount of epic characters <laughs> a horrible description of the dark tower by the way <laughs> uh yeah all right let, let's do one more sentence on that one because it's you know it's a whole seven eight book series whatever right okay uh, so i'll start out this one yeah roland and his ka travel is is katet to one word or two words katet. i'll say katet you could say katet. katet travel across space to accomplish the impossible <laughs> All right, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Roland and his content travel across space to accomplish the impossible. <laughs> I keep I keep like ending up in spots where I, I like just want to use like prepositions or whatever. Like, <laughs> I know you just want to say I, and <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's tough. All right. Um, let's try. Uh, let's try the catcher in the rye. Ooh, the catcher in the rye. I'll start out this one. Uh, I think it might be it might be good to start out with like a character's name, but uh, Holden Caulfield is moody all the time, <laughs> <laughs> and wants to save the youth from themselves there you go there you go that was a pretty that was a pretty good one yeah all right uh next one calvin and hobbs oh my just god in general just in general <laughs> that, how can that be yeah. uh how can that be summarized um uh, i'll go first uh imaginary playfulness gives children uh, the <laughs> confidence to grow all right there you go imagine what what, <laughs> what did we say imaginary playfulness gives children the confidence to grow <laughs> uh, yeah calvin i think it's a little it tackles some more serious stuff too. Well, I was going to say, I think an addendum to that sentence could also be children and adults. Yeah. Cause you go, you like reread Calvin and Hobbes and you're like, what? <laughs> Definitely. All right. Next one. Uh, the, the Iliad. Oh my God. The Iliad. Okay. Let's try I, it. I'll start out. Um, 
just go general. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, I don't want. I don't want to start. Out, I don't want to start out with A or the or whatever. So I'm going to start yeah. out with. I'm going to start out with a hero. Achilles. Travels. To. His. City. Because. King. I'll say two words because I remember this. King uh, Agamemnon. Is Agamemnon? Yeah. Is. Cheating, but. Uh, trying. To. Control. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> In Troy. Or something In Troy. Like that. Yeah. That's, I think. <laughs> That'd be interesting if we did like two words or, you know, it could only be a prime number of words that you say or some shit like that. Uh, two so words. Two words work. might work. Two words. Are, I think the thing in whose line it is it anyway, like that sets it off at its axis is because with between two people, one of us ends up being like, and the thing. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, let's okay. Yeah, that's next why, one. That's... Next one. Let's try two. You have to do two. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense because they're doing the three-headed Broadway star. So, right. like, even if it's like that, it's going to shift to the next person. To like the next person. Time. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think we've cracked it. Okay. So, next one. I was going to... Here, here's where I, you know, fucked with the formula. I said, let's, let's try a few that I haven't read. You know, two books that you've covered on this oh, okay, podcast okay, okay. that I don't know. I only right. really know what you've told me about it. Let's see if I can fill in the blanks. So the first one, uh, Killing Commendatore. By okay, Murakami. by Murakami. Okay. Um, okay. So th this is going to be hard okay. for me. An artist discovers that he doesn't fully understand who he is but he paints gorgeous portraits of young since it's Murakami I'll say um mis uh <laughs> manic pixie dream girls that's that's too yeah hard. that's that's pretty much perfect <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much for it even though i would say the young girl that he's painting in in uh killing commentadori she's not really a manic pixie dream girl but i think she would probably grow up to be one <laughs> okay uh, so, yeah but that, that was that pretty good better, yeah two words two words two words All okay right, next um, one the sparrow mary doria russell Oh my god, what a crazy book. I actually now that I'm back at my grandpa's house where a majority of my books are, I've I'm I've been seeing that one on the shelf and just shivering. But um Oh, you can restock. You can restock. Oh, I I am I'm bringing I'm bringing I'm checking a bag back to back home with that's basically 90% books. Um nice. Let's see. Your lending library. Yes, my lending library to myself um so the sparrow i guess i have to start out right or do you want to start out you start out uh okay <laughs> this book <laughs> <laughs> wow this book is about 
space travel. And Jesuits who realize that aliens inhabited the inhabited the planet they lived on (laughs) (laughs) planet they lived on now it's broken because this is not what the book is about (laughs) (laughs) I, i picked this one on purpose because you you wouldn't you um this one came with like a spoiler warning so you didn't really tell me what happened right i get the that like heroic kind of character went discovered the planet came back didn't like he like wouldn't talk about what happened there yeah basically yeah 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 but then you do (laughs) then you do find out i think that book when people find out the spoiler that i'm not giving away in the podcast i think it like like it's a great book and then i think the last like part of it probably like divides the audience i should check that out on goodreads because it's like such a good book and and i think that the ending is perfect but i could see a lot of people being like ew that's the bad <laughs> okay um so now so now we did two that you covered so now let's do two that i covered okay right, uh, the, the third policeman by flan o'brien okay so i'll start this one out sure dream logic Controls hell. But only. If you. Let it. There you go. <laughs> <I love that laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, the book is amazing. I've been staring at that at, at swim two birds. I'm going to read that soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, so uh, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. Okay, sounds frank. So I'll start. Okay. Um, DDT is probably the cause of so much uh, cases of <laughs> horrible bullshit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that works yeah ddt ddt probably is the cause of horrible many i I forget many cases cases of cases of horrible bullshit (laughs) (laughs) jesus structure in this this game is hard um all right one last one one last Uh, one okay we both done we or we both know about uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy just in general douglas adams nice i guess i'll start um the answer to the you life universe is is it 47 what's the answer what's the number you you like are not allowed you're like you're banned from this podcast and literature in general you can't forget you can't forget that the the unit the the answer to life the universe and everything is 42 42 okay yeah 42 at least you were in the 40s one yeah i was five five off plus or minus five i think is acceptable yes fine (laughs) (laughs) uh let's go one more time douglas adams you start all right um, Arthur Dent really shouldn't 
associate with people that are aliens. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. All right, that's a pretty good game. I think we figured out the mechanics of that game halfway through, but I think yeah. now that now that we know, we can polish it up. Okay. One yeah, yeah one does not work, but two yeah. two that works was, a little better. That was fun. All right, so uh, here we are, episode 32. Like I explained to everyone to begin with, uh, I have a book this week that Mark doesn't know what I'm going to talk about. He has one I don't know. So I'm just going to dive right in. This is episode 32. And I am bringing another author back into the fold because I feel like for a while as we were podcast, like I'm sure you have the same feeling, Mark, of like you don't really want to bring an author twice or like you want to do like a lot of variety. Yeah, I've been avoiding that so far. Yeah. Well, I'm going deep in and just saying I'm not going to avoid it because the person that I broke that pattern with was Ali Smith. And I said on the podcast before that, like, I wouldn't really necessarily suspect that she would be the author because she's not like my favorite writer ever. It just happened to be the organic growth of what I was reading. And I'm going to mm-hmm. go I'm going to go with that same theme and basically say, like, just organically through life. Sometimes you read the same author for long periods what would you say is like an author that you kind of dipped in and you like read several books in a row if any uh tom thomas hardy for sure thomas hardy yeah that's Jude the obscure right yep yeah i did the same thing i have like a huge like like there was like a big like year of my life where it was like the mishima year and then there's also (laughs) like there's like there's been a few dips into murakami because like you just finished one and it was like went by too quickly so you just like get another one um but someone who's come in and out of my life and who i'm bringing back to the podcast this week is kazuo ishiguru and uh in episode 24 i covered his his uh 1986 novel an artist of the floating world and today i'm covering three years later the next book that he wrote right after that is nine year 1989 the remains of the day by Kazuo Ishiguro, nineteen eighty nine. Nice. This is the one. This is the one you hear about all the time. This is the one. This is the famous yeah. one. So I'm not going to go too much into uh, Ishiguro's biography. I think I went a little bit more into him in episode twenty four. But he is famously a Japanese novelist, born and raised in the United Kingdom. So he was in a Japanese speaking household, but living in the United Kingdom for most of his life, and uh, that gives him obviously a unique cultural perspective. Not to mention the fact that he's an excellent writer and very critically acclaimed. He's sort of, and I want to get into that a little bit about how he's a literary figure, possibly for literary figure's sake. Um, but let's just dive right into it. So The Remains of the Day, probably his most famous book. It's also on the Man Booker prize list. So he won the Man Booker Prize in the United Kingdom, which is like their version of like the Nobel Prize for Literature. It's like the highest, the biggest award in the land that you can win. Mm-hmm. And he, there, there's also, I mean, you know how this compounds the success of a book. There's also a film for Remains of the Day that starred, um, you know, it had some really big names in it, Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, and it was an Academy Award nominated film like multiple times for 1989. Um, 1993 was when the film was made so four years after so you know how that like sort of that could be a reason why this is like what you 
the one that you hear about, you know, because this is the yeah. one that, that went it went all the way into like a film production. And then people are like, oh, you know, nominated for awards and blah, 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 whatever. So just a general synopsis of the remains of the day is that it's about an English butler. So it's like a butler in England. And we're and we're talking like classical, like pre-World War Two. It's basically a story of pre-World War Two and then someone recollecting after World War Two in this English butler and kind of like pre-World War Two. He was like existing in the land in like a very Downton Abbey-esque like he was the head butler of Lord Darlington's mansion, the Darlington home in the English countryside. And it's very kind of like Downton Abbey style where he was like the head of a staff of, you know, 15 or 18 or 20 people or whatever running this household um, for Lord Darlington. And then after World War II, he works for a rich American businessman that bought Darlington Hall after the fact. And he's sort of like, he only has a staff of two or three people at this point, And he's a little bit of like, an iconoclast of like this American businessman comes in. He's like, it's going to be fun. Cause I'm going to have this English man- mansion with an old timey Butler, you know, to kind of like show him off, mm-hmm. but it's not the same thing as, you know, running one of those old households where like tons of people like, you know, they had like giant like events and stuff like that in political parties. Like Manderley. Like Manderley. Yes. It's like a, it's like a old rundown at this point thing and what he's what stevens the butler is doing in remains of the day is that his new american homeowner that his master for lack of a better term is out on a business trip and he allows him to take like a really nice ford you know like basically like a sports car and he is doing a trip of the english countryside to go see if one of his former employees wants to work for him again Okay. So everything about this is all about recollection. Like he's going on this sort of life affirming road trip, but he's also recalling into the past everything that happened to him. But I want to say that I think it's interesting that Ishiguro writes an artist of the floating world in 86 and then remains of the day in 89. Obviously, like I said, it becomes a film. So it becomes a more popular literary work and like gets lauded as like, Oh my God, this book is so good. Blah, blah, blah. But if you ask me, Remains of the Day and An Artist of the Floating World are pretty much almost exactly the same concept and the same book, but one is Japanese pre and post-World War II and one is English pre and post-World War II, which is kind of interesting as like if you were in a literature class, it would be like a good way to sort of teach Ishiguro as, as like what his status in the literary world is because he's like like I said, like a, a a man of Japanese descent that was born in England. So he writes this one novel, an artist of the floating world about a Japanese conservative man. And you are, you are assuming his mind and kind of slowly figuring out that his past is maybe not as dignified as he would lead you to believe. And uh, the remains of the day is pretty much the same exact book. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually would say that as a criticism like in a weird way because i read an artist of the floating world first when i was reading this book i was sort of like oh this is like your thing at least at this period in his writing it's like because this butler stevens that you're assuming the mind of it's a first person narrative it's kind of very similar to to an artist of the floating world in the sense that he's this like buttoned up guy 
who is a butler. He's a professional butler. And he's basically giving you this narrative of like, my life is this and I was very dignified and I am very professional and like I never break from my professional like status unless I'm completely alone. But then you find out throughout time in the book that when you're spending time with him and how people react to him, just like in an artist of the floating world, you kind of slowly find out that the guy that he was working for, Lord Darlington, was at times a Nazi sympathizer, like going into World War II. So it's like all these people start meeting him and, and they're like, oh, you work in that Darlington house? Like, did you ever work for Lord Darlington? And then he like he's so dignified and such like a proud person, but then he'll kind of like avoid the subject of talking about how he worked for Lord Darlington. He'll be like, no, I'm like the new Butler for the American Mr. Faraday and stuff like that. And you're like, no, you weren't, you were totally like, like, and there's one scene in the book where him and his unrequited love for one of the house for the main housekeeper, Miss Kenton, he like he's someone who is unable to access his emotions so you can tell through several scenes that she is in love with him and he is like unable to drop his so-called dignity but there's like another scene in the book that's really good where lord darlington asks him to purge the staff of any jewish staff members and he kind of just like does it because he's like oh like i follow what the lord like what are like what our boss says it has nothing to do with me i'm just carrying out my job and you're sort of like mm-hmm. wow this guy is like he compartmentalizes and it's kind of like a study in compartmentalizing like there's also another scene where he's like yes i operate under the utmost dignity and he's talking about as it hit, there's like his father also worked for lord darlington and as his father passes away in the attic of the house is when a particularly important um like event is happening with all these like international leaders are at the house and as his father is dying upstairs his indication of how dignified he is is that he's telling you that he worked throughout the night without going to see his father (laughs) so he's like don't you see how like amazingly professional i am like i like this is the way it is so you're kind of like assuming the mind of someone who's like you're like what i don't really like this guy but in typical ishiguru style there's lots of beautiful writing so i will read you a quote from page 28 of my edition which is um you know it's just nice writing and something that i actually find to be very true having lived in the united kingdom so this will give you a flavor of steven's voice but also a flavor of ishiguro's writing so tonight in this quiet room i find that what really remains with me from this first day's travel is not salisbury cathedral is the day yes it's what remains (laughs) is the day yeah that's every sentence in the book um what remains with me from this first day's travel is not salisbury cathedral nor any of the other charming sights of the city but rather that marvelous view encountered this morning of the rolling english countryside now i'm quite prepared to believe that other countries can offer more obviously spectacular scenery indeed i have seen encyclopedias in the national geographic magazine breathtaking photographs of sites from various corners of the globe magnificent canyons and waterfalls ragged raggedly beautiful mountains it has never of course been my privilege to have seen such 
such things at first hand, but I will nevertheless hazard this with some confidence. The English landscape at its finest, such as I saw it this morning, possesses a quality that the landscapes of other nations, however more superficially dramatic, inevitably fail to possess. It is, I believe, a quality that will mark out the English landscape to any objective observer as the most deeply satisfying in the world, and this quality is probably best summed up by the term greatness. For it is true, when I stood on that high ledge this morning and viewed the land before me, I distinctly felt that rare yet unmistakable feeling, the feeling that one is in the presence of greatness. We call this land of ours Great Britain, and there may be those who believe this is a somewhat immodest practice. Yet I would venture that the landscape of our country alone would justify the use of this lofty adjective. So the whole voice of the entire book, which isn't too long, it only, I mean, it only took me about half a week to read, and it's 245 pages so it's like a pretty quick read everything is that buttoned up like in that voice of like i am english this is like my thing therefore thus Mm -hmm. you know whatever but i also happen to agree with that sentiment that there is something eerily amazing about the english countryside because i remember taking the train like a few times in the uk and you kind of just look at the english countryside and i think that it's very succinctly kind of said by ishiguro and that thing where you're just like it's not crazy. It's not like, you know, whatever, but there's just something about it when you're looking at it where you're just like, it's awesome. Like, it's just like, so it's kind of like, it's almost like a marketing ploy where you've, you've read like token and like all these things about like England and the English countryside and all these things, but it basically like lives up to the hype and you're like, yeah, it just seems super satisfying when you're looking at it. It's so peaceful. (laughs) it's just so like harmonious and just like what i mean it's so like down to earth like if you look at like the italian countryside it's like a little bit it's like it's almost like the standard of what isn't exotic but is beautiful kind of for the western world like it's not exotic but it is like very comforting it's like the comfort food that makes sense it's the comfort food of landscapes let me put it that way got some some water trees yeah it's just like yeah, just like trees and hills. Different and combinations of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're just like, wow, it looks freaking great. Um, another really interesting thing that I discovered in researching for the podcast, this is like a little bit of a sidestep, but it goes into the next quote that I'm reading. Um, there's something really amazing that the BBC does called the World Book Club. And I don't, I have like, I almost feel insulted that nobody in the UK, like, told me about the bbc world book club because it's like such up my alley but there is an interview that i will link on our on twitter and everything that is ishiguru um they do this thing called the bbc world book club that has some amazing authors on it. it's a really cool series and it has obviously since it's the bbc has a lot of big names like margaret atwood is on there nosgard don delilo arundhati roy who's like a famous Indian novelist in the UK, Ali Smith has been on there. Zadie Smith has been on there. Terry Pratchett. So obviously like the list goes on, but the format I find is like really awesome. Basically what they do is they have a book club meeting and they must like try to find people that they know aren't going to be too scared to be outspoken. And they have a book club meeting where it's like Ishiguru is in the book club meeting about remains of the day. (laughs) So it's like, you know, a maximum of like, you know, it's like a handful of people. And in the episode with Ishiguro, it's like, there's like these English people who are like, no, I didn't like that about the character or like, or, you know, I didn't find that believable. And he's like, okay, well, (laughs) let me like (laughs) talk, you know, yeah, kind of defend yourself, but also just like, he gives like really cool insights, like something that he said on the podcast on their podcast, which I thought was really cool was that he basically said, 
the traits that I find in myself or that I find to be true in others that need to be exposed or discussed were what he's putting into these novels. So it's like, there is like a contingent of a tinge of like cruelty or like being conservative or being like, you know, you want to acknowledge one thing about your emotions, but then when you end up doing is like shooting the other person down and stuff like that. And you don't really understand yeah. why. So like, there's all that in the remains of the day and art and also in the art and artist of the floating world. So I just found that really interesting and it's a really good conversation. So I'll make sure to link that out for anyone who wants to read it. Um, and that goes into the next quote that I wanted to read from the book, which gives you a, an insight into the Stevens character, but also what Ishiguro is analyzing here. I think it's a little bit like generational about like what is dignity. He also talks about that in the BBC World Book podcast. But I also felt a tinge of legitimacy for myself because this was a quote that I underlined in my book as I was reading it this past week. And this is also a quote that Ishiguro reads during the book club. So I was like, oh, I, I honed in on the right thing basically that's not that's actually really awesome <laughs> um so here's what he says and it's about half a page so this is stevens talking about dignity and now let me posit this dignity has to do crucially with a butler's ability not to abandon the professional being he inhabits lesser butlers will abandon their profession being for the private one their lesser professional being for the private one at the least provocation. For such persons, being a butler is like playing some pantomime role. A small push, a slight stumble, and the facade will drop off to reveal the actor underneath. Great butlers are great by virtue of their inability to inhabit their professional role and inhabit it to the utmost. They will not be shaken out by external events, however surprising, alarming, or vexing. They wear their professionalism as a decent gentleman will wear his suit. He will not let ruffians or circumstance tear it off him in the public gaze. He will discard it when and only when he wills to do so, and this is invariably be when he is entirely alone. It is, as I say, a matter of dignity. And this is like a good paragraph. This next paragraph reveals kind of the bias of Stevens and also a little bit a a tinge of his sort of ultra loyalty to a fault so he says it is sometimes said that butlers only truly exist in england other countries whatever title is actually used have only manservants i tend to believe this is true Con <laughs> continentals are unable to be butlers because they are as a breed incapable of the emotional restraint which only the english race are capable of continentals and by and large the celts as you will no doubt agree are as a rule unable to control themselves in moments of strong emotion and are thus unable to maintain a professional demeanor other than in the least challenging of situations. If I may return to my earlier metaphor, you will excuse my putting it so coarsely. They are like a man who will, at the least, at the slightest provocation, tear off his suit and his shirt and run about screaming. In a word, dignity is beyond such persons. We English have an important advantage over foreigners in this respect, and it is for this reason that when you think of a great butler, he is bound almost by definition to be an Englishman. Yeah, yeah. The, the English butler is such a good character, like, archetype. Right. I'm just and that's think, like when you're going through that, I'm thinking of all these like, you know, examples, you know. Right. Well, that's actually he's uh, Ishiguro Alfred. himself says that in the BBC book club, he basically says he was like, I don't really know. I don't like actually know any true blue English butlers from back in the day because I'm basically too young to know any of them. But he was basically like that was a character archetype I thought everyone would understand as someone yeah. who <laughs> who buttons themselves up every day and is like, I'm not going to talk about 
what I need to talk about or like what I should talk about. I'm just going to live duty. my life. Duty. Yeah. Dignity. Anticipate. Anticipate every single need, you know? Yes. Yes. So to an yeah. extreme. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's just, a, it's another good Ishiguro book, but I also, in my closing arguments that lead up to my one star review, I will say that for me, it felt like a bit of a repeat where I was like, oh, like this is an artist of the floating world, but in like assuming a different culture. I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad idea that Ishiguro kind of just had a, a theme for a little while, a theme that he's obviously broken up with since because his book from 2005, Never Let Me Go, is nothing like that. But um, yeah, it almost felt like a companion piece, which I was like a little bit surprised as I started to get into it. I was like, oh. This was his thing for a little while. And I think that it's sort of funny that one of them becomes more lauded than the other one. I guess that's how the business of book publishing and literature works. But it's like, oh, this amazing book, Remains of the Day. Not to mention that three years ago, the same book was written about the Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, which one I would ask, have to ask then, you know, which one is more popular in Japan? No, I don't know that. I do not know that. The one that's more I like the artist of, I like an artist of the floating world more simply because the subject matter of he was like a painter and an artist is kind of more of a draw to me than a butler, like a like extreme servitude kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um I just found it a little bit and also an artist of the floating world was more about family politics, whereas Remains of the Day is a little bit about romantic politics, like how he can't like acknowledge his feelings for this woman. Um, but yeah, really interesting book. I think it's interesting that it's the one that's more praised. And I think that it's kind of like an interesting point too, that goes into my one star review is like, I think in a certain sense, we should be wary of what it's told to us is excellent literature because, you know, when I was, when I was when I read Madame Bovary, that was like a smack in the face of like, oh, yeah, obviously this is a classic for a reason. And sometimes you can think that. But then other times I think that it's good to approach things with a grain of salt, because I would say to anyone like, oh, remains of the day, like Ishiguro is such a genius. I would be like, yeah, but floating world is like. Before that and like just as interesting. So like what makes literature literature kind of in a way i think some of the hype makes it what it is um so also a a lesson to kind of dig deeper and maybe read those books that aren't wrecked because i i'm guilty of like oh it's a new york times bestseller oh it won the man booker prize or oh it like did this that and the other thing when really maybe you can find something just as impactful that has no awards all over it so that's I guess a lesson that I would take from this. And my one star review is from Alex. He hit the mood exactly on the head that I felt about this book. Um, I would give this book a five star review. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's like really good writing and Ishiguro has a very unique, amazing voice. So, but Alex, that's the brilliance. That's the brilliance of the one star review. You know, they can pick on something, but you know, you didn't have to give it that rating because of that one thing. Right. (laughs) So this is exactly, he hits the nail on the head. Alex from Goodreads says, I had to read it for my literature class and I did not enjoy it, comma, but it is excellent literature. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently you've been told, Alex, that it's excellent literature and, and that that was, but what is excellent literature if you didn't enjoy the book? I mean, I think it's, I think it's a question for the ages. So, um. You know, be willing to trot on the classics, but also 
dig a little bit deeper. And uh, that's The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. All right. So for mine, you know, I, I have a, a dumb question this time. It's, you know, it's only only meant as a segue into introducing the title of my book. So here we go. What, what are your default ways of saying hello and goodbye? Like, you know, what's in your roster, your daily use? Because I feel like one of the main things that human beings do is they say hi and goodbye to each other. Or to, right. You know, um, coworkers, friends, and family. I think I think just plain hi, but in levels of excitement is there for me. <laughs> so like hi, but then also like, ah, you know, like, ah. I, I, I probably just make a noise more than I do actually say a word. And then there's also like, what's up? And then there, okay. and then, and then see you later. Casual. Yeah. See you later. See you later. Okay. Um, and then I, obvi- I like, I'm one of those people that says like the wrong thing at the end of an interaction. Like you like, too. Yeah. Goodbye. So and then, yeah. And then like, yeah, you too. Yeah. Like, or like, <laughs> or like, or like I'm going to, or I'm literally not going to see someone for like six months and we both know that. And I'm like, see you soon. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, that happens a lot with me too. Uh, I, I, I mean, you know, I figured that the two schools of thought for, uh, greetings and salutations are you know this is to to view it as something that's meaningful even though it happens every day so you know you're going to keep it fresh and say something different or you just you know you could also just realize that it is something you do every day and just maybe modify it a little bit if it's a weekend or something Mm -hmm. Uh, but mostly stick to uh stock sayings like you're a npc from a video game or something correct Um, I'm definitely like a, you know, just good morning or just morning sort of guy. If it's before noon, you know, hi, otherwise, or mm-hmm. um, definitely, I'm definitely a, a have a good one on departing. Yeah, yeah I'm definitely a, I feel like I do. <laughs> I, th- I think like I do have a good one with the older generation. Like if it's an older man, I'll be like, have a good one. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, you change it up. Depends on who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Uh but anyways, that was dumb. Ate up some time, though. And uh, so the book I have today is called So Long, See Tomorrow Ooh, okay. by, William, by William Maxwell. And, you know, that title carries some significance in the story. And, you know, it's something I'll, I'll read from that in a little bit. And it's it's kind of that thing where I was I was kind of poking at poking fun at it when you were talking about the remains of the day where he's like, all that remains. And I was like, <laughs> I was hoping for him to say, like, you know. They say the title. It's like a, in the movie where they say the title at a pinnacle right. part. The remains of the day actually is in in the book. It's towards the okay. end, but he it is nice. actually in there. Yeah. So this so um so long see you tomorrow is is in this book too. So so Willie Maxwell. Do you know about him? He was um. He was well known. Mo- he was most well known for being a fiction editor at the New Yorker. I don't know. I don't know about him. So, um, so yeah, he was he was a editor at the New Yorker for like f- almost four years, from nineteen thirty six to nineteen seventy five. Uh, he got to work, you know, with some pretty impressive authors. Like, uh, he worked, I guess, with uh, Nabokov and John Updike and J D. Salinger and a bunch mm-hmm. of other authors. This this is an epic was, guy. This is a behind the scenes guy. Yeah. But he, you know, he was also a prolific author in his own, and he produced 
handful of novels, a bunch of short story collections, and a couple children's books too. Um, but this is probably his most famous work, uh, So Long, See You Tomorrow. I feel like people like that write. should be more celebrated, you know? Like, like there are, like, we, we laud, like, the creative genius that, like, did his own thing or whatever, but it's like, this guy was, like, not only a good writer, which I'm sure you're going to talk about, but also, like, supported so much, you know, like, brought yeah. so much to people. Yeah, multi, uh, multi-talented. Yeah. And definitely some behind the scenes stuff too. Um, so this book is from 1980 and it was actually originally published in the New Yorker in two parts, which sort of makes sense because in paperback, it's only like 135 pages. Hmm, okay. Even still, that'd be a big, big chunk they put right in the middle of the New Yorker. Yeah, of the, of the magazine, yeah. Yeah. So I, I might like try and track down a copy of the the on ebay or something it'd be cool to to check out but so anyways this book is it's short but it packs a punch for sure and maxwell he's really good at utilizing like a sort of simple prose to to tell like multi-layered sort of story uh, so the basic premise here of this book uh just in one sentence is that there is an account of infidelity that happens in a rural Illinois town in the early 1920s. And this leads to a murder suicide. Hmm. So, you know, we have a turn of the century setting, early 1920s. It's, you know, they're still using horse carriages and all that. Um, but the themes here are incredibly relatable. It could take place in any time. And, you know, it's sort of centered around this murder, murder suicide, but it ends up being really about friendship and family dynamics and how memory affects things and really just fundamental themes of humanity, which is a pretty familiar trait for a good work of fiction. Um, so, to, so to, you know, dive a little bit more into the plot, the story is told from the perspective of an old man uh, looking back uh, on how his childhood friend Cletus basically <laughs> lost his whole being when his, his Cletus's father uh, murdered a man, then killed himself. Okay. And there's, there's basically two stories within it from, from that premise. Uh, one, you've got the narrator talking about his own life, you know, separate from that. And, you know, he deals with his own struggles. He lost his mother during the influenza breakout after world war one. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't get along well with his father. But he's, you know, he's recalling his friendship with that boy Cletus and how, and yeah, it, it's hard to read that. It is a very serious book, but the name Cletus, like, it, I, yeah. I'm just forced <laughs> to think of, like, The Simpsons and all that. Um, yeah, just jokes. Like, it's yeah, like, the, yeah. it's like the prototypical, like, su- like, make fun of a Southerner name. <laughs> it totally is. Yeah. And sorry to anyone named Cletus out there, but it's, it's like a, a almost a punchline, but so he's recalling, it's a narrator looking back, recalling his friendship with this boy and how everything, you know, changed for him and his, and his friend after, after the murder. And, you know, they weren't friends anymore after that. I don't know how you could be like, his life was just thrown, thrown out the window. Um, so, so that's one side of it. And then the other story is the narrator again, um, you know, trying to fill in the pieces of what really happened when he can look back 
as an adult. You know, he's looking back on how Cletus's like family structure was destroyed and what, and trying to go over what really happened uh, and not from the perspective of a child, but from, you know, with hindsight and with more information and with, you know, the, the stories that had passed in the town afterwards and just trying to talk about what really happened when this man was, he was murdered in his barn one morning while milking a cow. Um, so I would say I enjoyed the parts about the childhood storyline more than the breakdown of like the family unit and the, the adult glimpse into mm-hmm. the dysfunctional family. But, you know, both were really well written. So, I mean, I'm giving away the entire plot, but I don't really see this book as having spoilers. You kind of know right from the start what's going on. Mm-hmm. So you find out what really what so what really happens is Cleese's father, Clarence, he kills his best friend for, you know, his part in causing his wife to file for divorce and then he kills himself right after so you know in one story you have the kid's perspective of what this does you know basically how it affects the son of the murderer uh, from the kid's perspective which the kids the kid's only perspective was you know i know that someone died something fucked up happened but you know now i don't have a friend anymore and it sucks and you know, I have to move on and I can't really help him. And the other story is, you know, the narrator as an adult gaining the perspective of time and hindsight and maturity, understanding what really went down and maybe the more nuanced details, definitely able to relate to it much more looking back after he's had a whole life of his own. Mm -hmm. So that's really the story, you know, it ends up, it ends up being about two sets. Like when I boiled it down uh, after I, you know, when I was working on this book report here, I realized it ends up being about two sets of close friends that were divided in different ways. Like you have the adults. Um, they were just two farmers, you know, uh, Clarence and, you know, he had a Clarence and his wife. And then you have the neighboring farmer and his own wife. And there's, you know, some, uh, adultery and, you know, betrayal that ends up becoming murder. Uh, so that, you know, splits up these two guys that were, you know, best friends. And then, then you have the kids who are friends. Um, and so, so I'm talking about the two adults, but it's, um, the, the guy who was murdered, it wasn't, you know, his kid. I'm I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm mixing things up, but, (laughs) So you have the two adult friends and that gets, that gets destroyed. Then you have the kids friends, but they're just dealing with circumstances that are totally beyond their control. And what, what happened to them, what happened to their friendship and in the, the kid, that young boy's life was like really not understood until much later in life. Right. It's like and they were, it was like this, the narrator was like a witness to a tragedy that he's like just on the outside of. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I've got to say that's what hits you the hardest. That's what hit me the hardest in reading this book. Like, cause that's obviously an extreme example, like a a murder suicide and when someone's a child, but like Mm -hmm. you think about your own childhood and your own life and maybe just moments where you were 
cruel to someone or just, you know, not being very understanding, which I mean, happens all the time when you're a kid. And, you know, it's basically impossible for you to know the real circumstances or what was going on or the, you know, effect you might've had and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, you, you can't have those moments back and you, you can't know how it affected the other person, no matter how small of a moment, you know, cause that shit just mm-hmm. affects you the whole rest of your life. So I want to read two sections here that are centered around that sort of sentiment. And, um, the first one is the moment that contains the title of the book. Uh, but yeah, let me know how these passages make you feel or what you think about them. So I'm, I'm going to read from page 31 and then skip ahead to page 51. When I was a child, I told my mother everything. After she died, I learned that it was better to keep some things to myself. My father represented authority, which meant to me that he could not also represent understanding. And because there was an element of cruelty in my older brother's teasing, as of course there is in all teasing, I didn't trust him, though I perfectly well could have, about larger matters. Anyway, I didn't tell Cletus about my shipwreck as we, sh- as we sat looking down on the whole neighborhood, and he didn't tell me about his. When the look of the sky informed us that it was getting along towards supper time, we climbed down and said, So long, and see you tomorrow and went our separate ways in the dusk. And one evening, this casual parting turned out to be for the last time. We were separated by that pistol shot. And then now jumping ahead to when the narrator is in college. Mm -hmm. The school building was of gray stone and enormous. It was 10 times as big as the old overcrowded yellow brick high school in Lincoln. And the classrooms I had to go to were sometimes far apart. One day during the first week or so of school, as I was hurrying along a corridor that was lined with metal lockers, I saw Cletus Smith coming toward me. It was as if he had risen from the dead. He didn't speak. I didn't speak. We just kept up, kept on walking until we had passed each other. And after that, there was no way that I could not have done it. Why didn't I speak to him? I guess because I was so surprised. Because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what was polite in the circumstances. I couldn't say, I'm sorry about the murder and all that, could I? In Greek Greek tragedies, the chorus never attempts to console the innocent bystander, but instead, sticking to broad generalities, grieves over the fate of mankind, whose mistake was to have been born in the first place. If I had been the elderly man I am now, I might have simply said his name, or shaken my head sadly and said, I know, I know. But would that have been any better? I wasn't an elderly man. The bloodhounds had never been after my father, and I didn't know, how could anybody know, how many times has such a thing happened to a 13-year-old boy, what he had been through, any more than a person who hasn't had a car door slammed on his fingers knows what that is like. Boys are, from time to time, found hanging from a rafter or killed by a shotgun believed to have gone off accidentally. The wonder is it happens so seldom. I think now, I think if I had turned and walked along beside him and not said anything, it might have been the right thing to do. But that's what I think now. It has taken me all these years even to imagine doing that. And I had a math class on the second floor, clear at the other end of the building, and there was just barely time to get there before the bell rang. Well, sounds like an excellent book, if you ask me. Yeah, it's very powerful writing. Um, and I just feel like there's so much in that passage. Like, 
I feel like everyone has had that moment, no matter mm-hmm. like what was behind it of that like avoidance or that, you know, deer in the headlights feeling or just moments when you're confronted with something like that and you just can't react in mm-hmm. any way. You've either got, you know, there's time or, um, you know, past arguments or, or whatever, like tension between you and someone else or something, and you just can't bring yourself to react. And, you know, you just, of course, you just think about it a lot later, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the narrator here brings up that moment a few more times in the book, and it's very impactful. Um, but I just think yeah. there's a lot to relate to in that. Yeah, that was really, that was really interesting, really kind of, I th- I feel like it's almost like a succinct kind of like I I hate to say this because like unfortunately with me like all ro- all roads lead back to Proust but like that was sort of like a moment where he was saying in more plain language kind of some of the themes that come up in in Swan's way where it's like he you like a learn you learn like the history of like some certain people and then like what does a moment mean that is just like passing like a passing moment, you know? Yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah, crazy. man. I gotta get up on that Bruce stuff. <laughs> I I know, uh, I know just, how much there is. It's just uh it's a rabbit hole for sure. So it's kinda <laughs> like but the thing that I guess like the thing that I would say to maybe like ease the blow of of all of like the Bruce thing is that like it's definitely uh you know, I think people get in their heads like, oh, like there's these people out there who are like writing PhDs about it and everything and you have to read like all of it or like you have to do everything. But I think it's a more like easy thing to say that it's just like a lifelong sort of like companion thing where it's just like, yeah, you'll think about this book a lot, but you don't have to read it all at once and you can definitely just like read it throughout life. It's not like a big it's not a big deal. It's like a big to do for some people, but really it's just like, yeah. <laughs> no, I want to make it more of a to do. I think I'm going to insist on reading it in French and then tell people that's the only way to read it. The only, yes, of course, only in the <laughs> original. Uh, so anyways, um, so long to see you tomorrow. It's, it's pretty sad. Um, but I want to lighten things up a bit and talk about another great part of this book and I don't really have an example of it from other works, which is, I guess, a huge compliment. And that is that William Maxwell, you know, he makes a point of showing everyone's perspective through the narrator. Like Mm -hmm. if if someone's in a scene, you're going to know what they're doing and how they're feeling kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I say everyone, that actually includes like animals and specifically the family dog, like Cletus's family has a dog. And there's a bunch of different sections in the book where you understand what the dog's feeling and it's delivered in like a pretty interesting way. And I couldn't, I didn't think of marking down every time it happened, but I just took a quick scan through, uh, and with my like word search eyes looking for the word dog. And I found a couple and it just reads a couple quick samples here. It turned, it turned warm again. And there was a week of fine weather, except for the oak trees, all the leaves had fallen. Otherwise, it was like summer. 
With her paws resting on her nose, the dog followed the circling of a big horsefly, and when it zoomed off, she closed her eyes and went to sleep and dreamed that she was chasing a rabbit. Nice. So just kind of like assuming the mind of yeah of a dog. Yeah. Some of them are a little more detailed than others. Like, um, the new man's woman came, and more snow fell, and the ground was white and the snow turned to ice, and the dog slipped and slid when she tried to go anywhere. So she stayed in her house and slept. Sometimes she dreamed she was waiting at the mailbox for the boy to come riding up on the, uh, road, riding up the road on his bicycle. Awake, she wasn't anybody's dog. When she felt like wandering, she waited until the new man wasn't looking and then slipped away. Hmm, nice. So, like, the... the thing that makes it really crazy and i couldn't find this this section of the book but like the the man who ends up being you know the murderer he his life is you know destroyed by this divorce and the uh affair and whatever and he just some of his abuse he takes out like on the dog and on his kid on cletus and like i wish i could find that part but the there was parts where you know the dog is like fiercely loyal because it's a dog but still like you know, putting up with this abuse and stuff. Hmm. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of other parts that are like that in this book and um, interesting perspective. Uh, so anyways, yeah, it's a, it's a quick read. It's an enjoyable book. It's got that, you know, Midwestern realism to it. Hmm. Um, it's very sad, though, and, and you're definitely not going to find a happy ending as, you know, one of the main themes is, shame about not being able to remedy the past and that feeling of you know oh well what can you do i can't do anything right. powerless but uh to close it out i've got some one star reviews here just very succinct jody says do not read this book while written as it is unless you were looking forward to being depressed so that gets the the rating of one star <laughs> based on that and then kathy says so confusing with no real ending. Please never again. <laughs> Could be almost any work of literature. <laughs> yeah. I think she copies and pastes it on every book that she doesn't like. So yeah. So long. See you tomorrow. And thanks nice. for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. And you can also email us, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, send us some comments, suggestions, whatever you got. And uh, so long. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Or next week. See you next week. <laughs>